Edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 408. It is a Monday, March 29, 2010, and uh, we are rocking on with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about. your questions, your feedback, your issues, uh, both questions you've asked me and stories and, and commentary that you've sent me for my comment. I have about eight good ones queued up today. We're going to be talking about a lot today. We're going to be talking about things like the grasshopper invasion. Yes, the grasshoppers are going to invade. Now, I don't mean the unprepared people. I mean the actual grasshoppers and a lot of other cool stuff. But before we get into that, we get into your questions, your comments, and your stories. Let's uh, chat in just a minute about our housekeeping so we can knock that out. Before we do, though, uh, you might have noticed a distinctive difference in the way that I sound today. Deeper, uh, clearer, a lot less hum and feedback and dissident hum in the background. That's because a really great listener who I'll just call Chris, I'm not going to give his last name out because I don't think he wants that, sent me a really awesome condenser microphone. It's a uh, USB studio condenser microphone made by Samson called the CO1U. And as you can hear, it is quite a bit of a improvement over the audio quality that you may have become accustomed to. Um, I wasn't unwilling to go out and get one myself. Um, I just had this hum that I had isolated down to being the... Uh, AC power source in my office and was afraid that even if I had a great microphone, it would just make a really great recording of the hum. But uh, when he said I would donate this to you, I offered him a few free years of the MSB for it, and he said no, he wanted to support the show and just wanted to make a donation. Uh, so he has made a donation that doesn't just help me, it helps all of you guys as well. Better audio quality from here on out. Hope you enjoy it. Moving on with the housekeeping, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one. MERS-radio.com. That's right, M-U-R-S-radio.com. You can just go to the website, survivalpodcast.com, click on their banner. That way you know you're dealing with an official survival podcast sponsor. But what is MERS Radio? MERS is a great way to create um, communication really more for your property uh, and a little bit offside of your property. About one mile of range with the radios. Uh, integrated with sensors that detect motion throughout your property. So you have security and private communications on your property. You also don't need any license to use it. And uh, really cool technology. Recommend you check it out. Next up today is the Berkey guy. The Berkey guy is really cool. He has, uh, of course, Berkey light water filters. And he'll do whatever he can to help you find the right system for your needs, folks. I want you to make sure that whether it's a Berkey light water filter from the Berkey guy or some other system, that you do have a method to purify water as part of your preparations. Uh, and I think you should be using some type of water purification on a day-to-day basis if your water source is city water. Uh, there's things in that water I don't want to be drinking, and in a catastrophe, I might wish I had that water with uh, with its things that I don't want to be drinking in it. So uh, check out the Berkey guy. Again, you're dealing with an individual that owns the company that's going to do everything he can to make things right for you. That's the type of sponsors we have here. 
personal attention to the listener to make sure they get exactly what they need. And remember, all of our sponsors are vetted by our moderators on our forum. And if two or more moderators say, yeah, we don't want this sponsor, I have to turn them down. I don't know of anybody else that has a process like that. If they ever do, you can bet that they're annulating us here at the Survival Podcast. Moving on, check out our gear shop. Uh, Sis Wolf and TW have really cool stuff there for you. T-shirts, hats, we got a new bag coming out. That should be on the the, uh, the site very, very soon. Get your challenge coins. Second round of them are almost sold out. The challenge coins are really cool, and uh, I think they'll be something you can have, and it can be a discussion piece about modern survivalism and how it differs from being, you know, the media's version of us as a nut job out in the forest somewhere hiding in a bunker. bit more about hiding in bunkers uh, in a bit. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get um, exclusive content available only to members, along with uh, discounts to about 18 vendors now. So it's something I really recommend that you check out, uh, and it will be how you can support the show. It basically comes down to your supporting my show at a little bit less than 20 cents an episode. That's $5 a month or $50 a year. You get a discount at an annual membership. And uh, you'll get a lot of great things. Again, there's about 20 members-only videos. For example, one is on Russian martial arts and systema striking. One is on building a strawberry pot. Uh, one is on making biltong. I keep getting requests. Jack, where's the video on making biltong? It's in the Members Brigade. It's exclusive to members only. Uh, so that's just some of the stuff that's there. And remember, I now take American Open Currency Standard, or AOCS, silver at face value for the Members Brigade. So if you print out the form to pay my check and send me one AOCS $50 value, or actually 50 value silver round, uh, I'll take that as payment. That'll basically get you your membership for half price. Or if you want to pay with anybody else's silver, I take two ounces of silver for a year, or I take check, money, order, cash, or you can pay by PayPal online. Your choice. Let's get on with the show. We have a great one queued up today. Uh, let's go ahead and take our first question slash comment from the audience. So one of the things that I've been really worried about is the effects of genetically modified foods, um, both when we consume them and beyond that, just the very fact that they're out there and they're cross-pollinating into other stands of food. And basically, if we keep up this pathway of continuously genetically modifying most of the foods that people are consuming today, we're going to get to a point where we don't even have a choice anymore. Finding pure strains of, of anything is going to become very difficult. And, uh, of course, I, I, I have a huge... I guess it would, you would call it a hatred. I don't have a lot of hatred in my life anymore. But for companies like Monsanto, I have a genuine hatred for what they're doing to our planet. And it's not just Monsanto. Let's be fair. It's ConAgra. It's BearCorp. It's, it's all of these companies that are making our food uh, not what it was intended to be by splicing genes together, by taking a fish's gene and putting it into a corn gene and then growing corn with it. I, I just think we've gone too far. And I'm not anti-technology, but... I think we've gone too far. So this listener sends in a question that I find interesting, uh, but I'm not going to give maybe the answer he expected. This comes from Jeff, um, who is also known as Lost Airplane on our forum. Dear Jack, Yahoo News is reporting a huge honeybee die-off over the winter. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the possibility of genetically modified crops having anything to do with the demise of so many bees. I really don't know. And I can't say that I, I think that they are the cause of it. And trust me, there's nothing I would like more than to point out yet another proof point that genetically modifying our food is bad for both our both human beings and, and our planet as a whole and poses a true threat to us. 
But the reality is I don't have one shred of evidence to back that up. And the majority of our genetically modified foods are right now, uh, you know, centered around corn. That's where the most work is doing, some on rice. Uh, I guess there's canola, so that's that's a flowering plant, but the majority of it is going to be plants that don't flower, like corn is a wind pollinator, so it doesn't really affect bees. Now, canola, I you know, here's the thing about this. This is all circumstantial, uh, completely opinion at this point, but uh, so remember, I don't report facts unless I know they're facts. Uh, there is some circumstantial evidence there that if the big die-off of bees is in Canada and Canada is using an awful lot of genetically modified canola, that that could have some effect on the honeybee population, uh, because that is a huge Canadian crop. Um, the majority of it grown is Monsanto's Roundup Ready variety, but it's been grown there a long time, and we've found some other things wrong with the bees, specifically some viruses and uh, colony collapse disorder and things like that. I'm not willing to make that leap. I do think it's quite disturbing uh, that a company like Monsanto is doing the things that they're doing, but we can't blame everything on them. Uh, if we start having our children in the future dying of accelerated rates of uh, kidney and liver failure, let's say when they're 25, 30 years old, after eating this crap, corn, uh, that's done the same thing to mice for 20 to 30 years, I think we'll be able to point the finger at Monsanto for that. And God, I hope that never comes to be. I hope we wise up before uh, people ingest this stuff for that long. But the honeybees, no, I don't think we can blame Monsanto for this yet. That said, this is just another example of why we need to take control of our own lives. This is why maybe you should have a little honeybee hive in your backyard. At least you have one little hive you can do what you can to protect, and if they fail, you can get another hive started up. Uh, or at least bring in some mason bees like we talked about last week. But get some pollinators out there and grow your own food. I'm going to hold back on the growing your own food uh, for right now because I'm going to have something for you in just a minute that's going to make genetically modified maybe not sound as bad. Uh, we're going to get into the real realm today of science messing with your food in ways that just really begin to boggle the mind as to why anybody would allow this, let alone not even look at it. And that's what our FDA is doing. But we'll hold off on that for now. Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, this one is interesting. It comes to me from a gentleman named Sean. And Sean is asking about pH testing of his soil for his garden. It says, Jack, I'm starting to lose most of my seedlings. I have spinach, honeydew, and uh, bell pepper. How do I determine the pH level of the soil? How do you do this, and how do you amend the soil in your garden? Thank you. Well, there's a lot of things that you can do, and usually if you have problems like you're describing there, uh, your soil may be a bit too acidic, and using uh, either, uh, you can either use wood ash, or you can use, or you can use lime, and either one of those will bring the acidity down. Uh, you can have soil that's too alkaline as well. Um, I would tell you if your seedlings were doing well, not to even worry about your soil pH at all. Because I think this is one of the more overthought things out there. And unless soil is really out of whack, unless it's truly alkaline or truly acidic, generally speaking, it's not the main problem. Uh, I don't know what else you're doing with your seedlings. I don't know what the temperatures are like where you're at. I don't know if the nutrient balance is right. I, I don't know where you're I don't know how well established they were before you planted them. I don't know if maybe you're planting them into brand new compost that's not fully broken down and the nutrients are there but they're not bioavailable yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm hesitant to tell you that it's your pH. I'll tell you this though. 
Um, the little soil test kits that you uh, that you buy in a store, like Home Depot, for a few bucks. The, the 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 value of the information on the nitrogen in those tests are just pointless. I, I mean, you you'll test soil, and those kits will tell you there's no nitrogen. You sell it, send it off to like the agricultural extension or whatever, and you'll find out the nitrogen's just fine. Uh, I don't trust those kits. That they seem to be because I've done soil testing with uh, the extension and uh, soil testing with the kits from the the store. They seem to be pretty close on pH, at least reasonably close. Here's the thing, though. I've learned since I've started studying permaculture that soil pH levels do what's called stratify. And eventually you end up with maybe some of your surface soil being somewhat acidic, and then you go down to a neutral and you go to a basic. And if you allow plants to have their way with things and quit tilling your soil over and over and mixing it back together and throwing things out of whack, plants will send out the majority of their roots at the stratified level of the soil where they get the, uh, the, 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 the pH that they're looking for. So I think that's something to really consider before we start trying to alter the pH of our soil is to just stop digging, stop tilling, go to sheet mulching, plant our plants into the soil. That said, if you have seedlings dying off, you need to find out what's going on with your soil. So I would recommend that you find your local agricultural extension and send in a soil sample to have it tested following the instructions that they'll provide for you when you go to send in that sample. And that's the best way to do it. You could have a nutrient deficiency. It may have nothing to do with your pH. If you have soil that has no ni- available nitrogen in it, for instance, you're not going to be able to get seedlings off to start. They're, they're starving to death. You, your soil could be too wet. Uh, that might be one of your problems right now. It could be getting too cold at night and chilling your roots. You could have a fungal infection. I don't know, but I would go ahead and get your soil tested to eliminate that one thing. But if your pH is anywhere kind of right in that middle neutral range, it's probably not pH that's your issue, and you need to look for another thing. Before we make this into Jack's Gardening Hour, let's go ahead and take another question. It has nothing to do with gardening today. All right, th- this one's kind of interesting, and it's kind of a tag team on my blog between a commenter called Dax, who's commented on the blog a lot of times. It is really a great commenter, a pretty interesting person, and seems to be well-grounded, and, and uh, I really appreciate Dax being on my uh, on my blog and making comments. The other person is named Andrew, and I think this Andrew has commented before. There's quite a few Andrews on the blog that just go by Andrew, so I'm not sure. But Andrew made a video. He made the video Saturday night. That was March 27th, or that yeah, was 27th, uh, 2010. And he made it between the hours of either 7.30 and 8.30 or 8.30 and 9.30, depending on what part of the country he was in. And he was running all around his house, taunting the Al Goreites, going, Look! Look at my lights on! Look at the lights on they're in the on in the attic, they're on in the cellar, I've got the fan running in the back, I've got every single light that I can run running right now, whether I need it or not. How do you like that? And he posted a link to this video and uh a little comment that said, Jack, I think you'll love this. And Dash got on and kind of chided him a little bit and said, Hey, that kind of wasteful behavior, I highly doubt that Jack endorses that. That's the, that's the mentality that killed off all the buffalo, killed off all the salmon, a belief that it would never run out. Whether we have politics in this or not, that type of behavior is, is just nonsensical. Stop doing that. And then Dax came back and said, hey, don't you understand that this was lights out day? This was earth hour uh, that Al Gore put out. And, and then, you know, Dax came back with another rationale of, you know, we just don't waste things like that and wanted to know my thoughts on it. Here's my thoughts. Good for you, Andrew. 
Uh, now, let me clarify that. If Andrew lives like, if Andrew's house looks like it did in that video right now, he should probably get a good, good uh, monkey slap to the ear. Uh, it is not cool to be out there wasting power just because you can. So why do I say good for him? Because here's what Earth Hour was. Earth Hour was put together by Al Gore and his minions to be a point of, I believe, actually a, a type of mind control of the United States public. To be an admission of guilt by turning off all your lights. So what we were supposed to do Saturday evening at 7.30 was turn off every light in our home, every electrical appliance, everything that drew power from the grid to produce evil CO2. Shut everything down, darken the skies, and send a symbol that we're willing to act and help Mother Earth. Great. And then at 8.30 we could turn it back on and go back to playing our video games and everything else. Well, my biggest problem with this is that these idiots, and they are idiots, spent millions of dollars, and I mean millions of dollars, on national television advertising telling us to turn our freaking lights out for an hour because we were going to save the planet by doing it. And I do believe it was an attempt, a very unsuccessful attempt, might I add, at some level of more mind control over the sheeple. And what Andrew was saying is, you know what, if you're going to tell me to turn my lights off for now, I'm going to turn on every freaking light I have for that hour, and then I'll go back to living my normal way. I'm going to stand up and resist the only way that I know how. So good for him. Now, why didn't I get on the air if I feel this way and tell everybody about Earth Hour in advance and say, why don't everybody, why don't we all turn on every light we have, go out in the street and play music and hang out and party for that hour, burning as much electricity as possible? Because I think most of you didn't even know about it. And I think most of America didn't even know about it. The last thing I wanted to do was make 10,000 people aware of this damn monstrosity before it happened and give it any power as we're leading up to it. I think it went down with a major flop and nobody gave a damn. And I think some people like Andrew that were paying attention and knew just felt, you know what, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of being told, you can't do this, you can't turn your... You know, Obama said when he was running for election, we can't have everybody's house at 72 degrees during the summer and at 72 degrees during the winter. We have to sacrifice. But I bet you his ass isn't sacrificing. So I understand why Andrew did what he did. That said, I don't think we should be wasting our energy resources. But turning all your lights on for an hour to make a point, I'm glad he did it. That at least counteracted one boob out there because all they're going to do to try to make this look like it was a success is take the, the uh, electrical usage last year on this day and the electrical usage this year on this day, and they're going to tell us how many megawatts were saved or something like that. And uh, if you're interested in how well this was planned, look at what the temperatures were across our country on March 27th, uh, 2009. And they were unseasonably cool. And we have pretty nice, you know, kind of catalog level weather this year. So I'm sure that will play into it. I'm really not paying attention to it. But Andrew, I understand why you did what you did. And if you didn't know, folks, you were supposed to turn out all your lights on Saturday evening. I want to hear from you. Who turned off their lights? Tell me in my blog at the survivalpodcast.com in the notes, uh, the uh, comment section of this episode uh, of the show notes. And who didn't? And did anybody else pull an Andrew? Did anybody else turn all your lights on? And then was anybody else like me? I meant to turn all my lights on. I wasn't going to make a YouTube video and run around. But I was going to turn on all the lights to make sure they were on, on the porch and stuff so that people could see it if I had any greenies on my uh, on my street. And uh, I didn't do it. And the reason I didn't do it is I forgot because it wasn't that big a deal to me. So I want to know which one of the three do you fall into. Let's go ahead and take another question. So as I said, 
And I'm not kidding here. The grasshoppers are about to invade. Yes, folks, hide. Go to your bunkers now. The grasshoppers are coming. They're invading in a force of billions. Yes, they're coming. It's the end of all time. Now, it's not that bad, but really there are going to be over a billion grasshoppers invading this summer in the western plain states. It might be the worst outbreak in 30 years. Another reason that we could see a spike in food prices. You know, it's, it's not enough that our government is stupid and turned off the water in California. You know, they turned the water off there, so they basically destroyed most of the San Joaquin Valley and turned it into desert now. Um, it's not enough that we've had, you know, an earthquake in Chile, and we're going to have an impact on produce from that country, at least a little bit. It's not enough that we have our government being dumb enough to turn enough grain to feed a half a million people into, into biofuel. Uh, now we have the invasion of the hordes of grasshoppers. And um, I'll tell you what, this is not going to change the life of the average American that's not a farmer that's not or a rancher out in Wyoming or South Dakota or, or Nebraska or Kansas, something like that, a great deal. Um, you might see your food prices go up, but what's new? Food prices always go up for some reason or another. But this is serious, and it's an, it's an opportunity for us to learn the way that our government and the way that our industry responds to a threat. So what's going to happen is last year, they went out and they did surveys, they always do this, of insect populations at the end of the season. And they found a way higher uh, number of adult grasshoppers than they normally find, like way higher. And I'll put a link to the actual story on this so you can uh, find out about these grasshoppers. And they're migratory grasshoppers that travel up to 60 miles a day. So they kind of go through like hordes of locusts devouring everything that they see. So since the, the adult population was so much higher at the end of the season last year, that meant that they, you know, right before winter came and killed all the grasshoppers and the ants went into their holes, grasshoppers did one of the frolicking things that they do when they're playing, and that is they made it, and they made lots and lots and lots of eggs, more eggs than normal. So that means we're going to start the season out with more grasshoppers than normal, and since they breed during the season, we'll end up with this massive horde this year of grasshoppers, as best they can tell. So what are we going to do about it? Well... Basically, the plan is spray, spray, spray. We're going to spray as much insecticide as we can, where we can, to try to control them. And uh, some of the ranchers and some of the farmers are basically not going to, they're having almost like a community spray, like slush fund. Like you would pay to be included in the aerial spraying. And some of the ranchers are saying, well, like last year I lost ten grand on these things, and it's going to cost me more than that to be in the spray thing. In fact, a lot more than that. So even if I lose 15 this year, it's cheaper for me to lose the 15 than it is to spray and not lose the 15. So at least there's some hope there. But what would Jack Spierko do? If Jack Spierko uh, was dealing with the situation and was raising cattle this year in the, uh, in the Great Plains somewhere and was worried that he was going to have a mass of grasshoppers come in and get into his grass fields, his alfalfa fields and things like that, and did just destroy everything, what would he do right now? Well, here's what I would do. I would go out and I would immediately sell off about 20% of my cattle head. And I would use all the funds raised to purchase turkeys. And I would plan on selling this year around Thanksgiving free-range turkeys. Yep, free-range turkeys would be what I would be going to. I don't know if the mic picked that up in the background, man. We just got dive-bombed there by uh, one of the local aircraft. It sounded like they were about two feet over my roof. I paused it to time, muted out, but maybe it's the uh, maybe it's the government monitoring my broadcast. Just kidding, folks. Um, but I would bring in turkeys, and you might think I'll flip my lid. Why the heck would Jack bring in turkeys? Turkeys love grasshoppers. 
So what the big problem for the ranchers has been, how does the, 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 the grasshopper affect the cattle? Well, the ranchers have all this grass-fed beef. And what happens is the grasshoppers eat so much of the grass that there's less food for the beef, so the beef grow, the, the cattle grow smaller, and they get less of a harvest, and they have to, re, they actually have to uh, go ahead and do what I said anyway, which is dump some of their herd early before they're fully matured, because they are going if they, they can't support the same head of cattle. So the guy normally runs, let's say, a thousand head or ten thousand head, depending on the size of his ranch, or a hundred thousand head. He has to pull it back to you know by ten percent, maybe ninety thousand if he was doing a hundred, or maybe even eighty thousand if he was doing a hundred on a really big ranch, or if he was doing ten thousand on a mid-sized ranch, maybe he has to pull it back to eight thousand. If it was a little operation with a thousand head, maybe he has to pull it back to nine hundred or eight hundred, because now the land just won't support the same amount of cattle. Uh, and this is true in like totally, you know, green grass-fed operations, not just the chemically polluted stuff. So I would bring in this army of turkeys. Now the turkeys are going to sell at a higher market rate because they're free range, and they're going to help me make the rest of my cattle get through with plenty of food, and I'm going to have massive control of the uh, grasshopper problem because I'm just going to free range those turkeys out of my ranch rate with my cattle. And you know what's going to happen? They are going to turn into grasshopper-devouring machines. Turkeys will eat pounds of grasshoppers a day per turkey. Uh, they relish them typically above all other things. That is one of their favorite things. Now, are they going to completely control the grasshoppers? No, but without spray, I'll do better than anyone else. So I would bring in turkeys, and if you are a cattle rancher in that part of the country right now, you might want to consider bringing in turkeys. Um, and I would, again, be marketing free-range turkeys around Thanksgiving time uh, through whatever distribution channels that I had. If you don't do that, your only other alternative is to spray, and, of course, the cattle are going to eat the grass that you've, you've sprayed. So uh, those are my thoughts. But, yes, folks, the grasshoppers are going to invade. Look for a spike in beef prices, especially grass-fed beef, uh, going into the second half of the year might be a good time to stock up on some things that maybe you can or turn into biltong or things like that right now. Because what happens before the spike, the price actually drops. And you might say, how does the price drop first? Well, because the, the ranchers already know this is going to happen, so they have to, uh, to cull their heads down. So it puts a surplus on early. So you should see beef prices go down a bit in the next month or two. You might want to take advantage of that. Now, what about corn and all the vegetables and Grains grown throughout the Midwest as well. Is that threatened? You bet it is. And uh, not as easy as an answer. If you turn, uh, if you turn turkeys loose in uh, a wheat field, they're going to eat an awful lot of the wheat, uh, not just the, uh, the grasshoppers. But uh, it could still be done with uh, certain controls put in place. But uh, it's not as easy. So every once in a while, about every 30 years, we have to deal with this happening. It's a, it's a cyclical thing. Uh, now, the 2012ers will be out going, look, it's biblical or something like that. No, just an invasion of grasshoppers, folks. So uh, hold on to your ant supplies, and let's take another question. So you don't like the fact that we have genetically modified food. You, you wish that our food could be the way that it was intended by our creator, unaltered. And, uh, you know, if we want to do selective breeding and all, that's fine. But when we start chemically and genetically altering food, that's a problem. Well, then you're going to really hate this. Um, here's the headline of the story. Regulated or not, nano foods coming to a store near you. Let me 
read you a little bit out of this. This is about what was going on at a convention with 14,000 food scientists, chefs, and manufacturers crammed into an Anaheim, California hall. In one corner of the convention center, a chemist, a flavorist, and two food marketing specialists clustered around a large chart of the periodic table of elements. Think back to high school science class. The food chemist from China ran her hands over the chart, pausing at different chemicals just long enough to say how a nanoized version of each would improve the existing flavors or create new ones. One of the marketing guys questioned what would happen if the consumer found out. The flavorist asked whether the Food and Drug Administration would even allow nano-ingredients. Posed a variation of the latter question, Dr. Jesse Goodman, the agency's chief scientist and deputy commissioner for science and public health, gave a revealing answer. Hold on, folks. He said he wasn't involved enough to know how the FDA was handling nanomaterials in food to discuss that issue and the agency wouldn't provide anyone else to talk about it. This despite the fact that hundreds of peer-reviewed studies have shown that nanoparticles pose potential risk to human health, and there's a link off to those risks. And more specifically, that when ingested can cause DNA damage that can prefigure uh, cancer and heart and brain disease. So, basically, officially the FDA says there aren't any nano-containing food products currently sold in the U.S., but that's not true, say some of the agency's own safety experts. Pointing to scientific studies published in food science journals, reports from foreign safety agencies, and discussions and gatherings like the Institute of Food Technologists Conference. In fact, the arrival of nanomaterial on the food scene is already causing some big chain safety managers to demand greater scrutiny of what they're being offered, especially with imported food and beverages. So basically, it's already it's already out there. We don't know exactly where from or how or what it's in, but even some of the grocery store managers are saying, hey, we're going to get our hands on this ourselves. So even the grocery store that's willing to sell all the crap with the GMO corn in it is going, hey, man, we might want to take a look at this. But what is nanotechnology, for those that maybe don't know? Nanotechnology is where we get down to the atomic level with a substance. And we build either a new substance or even tiny little machines that are atomic size and scale. In other words, the size of an atom or the size of an individual molecule that can do things like cross blood-brain barriers, right? Because they're small enough to cross these barriers in the body. Um, there's nano research that's being done to basically build little nano uh, units that could actually perform surgical functions in the human body. It's actually quite exciting. I, I have a fear of it, and I also have a hopeful optimism of uses like that. But putting it in our food, uh, some of the uses that they're talking about in this article, one is uh, they show a ketchup bottle that's almost completely empty and lining the inside of a ketchup bottle with a nanoized version of a substance so that you know how that last little bit of ketchup won't come out and you end up putting a little bit of water in there and shaking it up to get it out. Um, this, that way you won't have to do that. You'll get every drop out of it. There's a tremendous amount of things that these guys are thinking about what they want to do to our foods. Of course, I believe it's only a matter of time before this technology gets blended with genetic modification. And what they're saying right now is almost all of this stuff is currently being governed under what's called generally recognized is safe. Um, you know where we first heard that term in the GMO debate? Uh, it's starting in the 90s when people said, hey, I don't want genetically modified corn. Why aren't you regulating this? And the FDA said, hey, this is genetic, uh, generally recognized as safe. 
There's no, you know, it's under the same, in other words, they're saying it's regulated, but it's regulated the same way that everything else that's already approved for use is regulated. You have to keep it clean. You can't, you know, store it in a, in a basement uh, with mold growing on it. You have to use it probably. So let's put it this way. Um, it's, it's generally recognized as safe to make tomato sauce out of tomatoes, right? But there's still regulation around that. I can't leave my tomatoes piled up outside buzzing with flies and maggots and then one day scoop them all up and make tomato sauce. The FDA would say that's not healthy. At least that's what we're told. And uh, I think is largely true. Uh, but if I want to use tomatoes, I can use tomatoes. They don't have to go through any approval process. Well, this genetically modified corn and this new nanotechnology right now is being looked at as generally recognized as safe. You can't do things with it that you wouldn't be able to do with any other food ingredient, but it in of itself is just considered a safe ingredient. You wouldn't have to go get salt approved if you were going to add salt to a seasoning packet you were going to sell. It's salt. That's how they look at this stuff. But now we're talking about science fiction and science fact merging together. As I said earlier, another reason to grow your own food. Another reason to take control of what you're eating. Another reason to go out and find local farmers markets and community-supported agriculture and what you can't grow, buy locally. And if you're going to buy it uh, from farther away, buy from known organic sources. Buy from wildcrafted sources. Buy from people that pledge to use safe seeds and only safe seeds and not to use biotechnology uh, and not to use chemicals that are potentially damaging to human beings and to uh, the livestock around uh, these things and to our planet as a whole. And it's not as hard as you might think, and I don't think organic is the end-all, be-all. It's just one way to do that. I think if you can find people that are providing a, a good food, uh, that say, hey, look, uh, we're not 100% certified organic. We don't even want to go through the government rigmarole to do it, but we've pledged that we do not use genetically modified seed. We do not use chemical fertilizers. We do everything in an organic fashion. That's a big step in the right direction as well. So I'm going to post a link to this today, but if you guys think that I'm pulling this stuff out of thin air, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. This is absolutely flat out uh, from a, a reputable source. This is on AOL News today. And uh, it's called the Nanotech Gamble, Bold Science of Big Money and Growing Risks. So check out that article. And again, you know, as I keep telling you, it makes sense to take control of what you're putting in your body because uh, somebody else right now is controlling what you're putting in your body. And they're more worried about the bottom line and their wallet than how healthy it is for you. And I don't mean it in the, you know, you know we all should be as healthy as we can. I'm talking about things that pose severe long-term risk. And all one has to do is look at the rates of cancer today versus the rates of cancer in 1900 when medical science was supposed to be terrible to see that the more crap they put in our food, the more adverse effects it has on our body. Uh, let's go take another question or piece of feedback. Here's another interesting one. Um, this comes from somebody called uh, Rob. And Rob says, last year I purchased a number of fruit trees and nut trees from a mail-order catalog. Wish you would have told me which one. I planted the sticks, I mean trees, as per the included directions. None of them took. Do you have any suggestions for growing trees like these? Uh, it sounds like you got bare-rooted trees, and you want to make sure that, that you order them at the right time of the year and plant them in the springtime uh, before most of the other trees start to bud so that they're still in that dormant period and they have time to kind of wake up. They don't try to wake up while they're in transit and get thrown out of whack. Now, most good companies will only ship them to you during the right time to plant them for your area. So I'm assuming that worked. It sounds like you got some bad trees with, with a few caveats. One, 
did you irrigate them properly? If you don't water trees, especially bare root trees in their first year well, uh, you're going to have a hard time getting them through the first year. Two, I want you to go out and look at your sticks, your, your little trees, and look at the bark around them. Uh, rabbits have a tendency with young trees, if you have rabbits in your area, to actually chew the bark around the bottom of the trees. Or uh, if you have a son or a neighborhood kid over there weeding for you, did they hit the tree bark with the weed eater too much? What, what I do when I plant new young trees before they can you know, handle this type of abuse as I go to Home Depot, and at Home Depot they sell this, this black kind of uh, looking pipe, and it's kind of flexible, and it's designed to put in underground for drainage. So it's designed if you have too much moisture in your backyard to take drainage and drain that stuff out of your yard. And it's pretty cheap, and I buy a, a section of it. And I'll cut a piece about 8 to 10 inches long, and then I'll cut a slit so that you can pull it open, and I'll put that around the tree. It's the cheapest, safest, easiest way I know <clears throat> to protect the lower portion of that young tree's uh, uh, trunk while it's in that developmental stage. I also dig away a little bit of dirt and actually set that about an inch under the ground and then pile dirt up around that. That helps also keep down some insect pests as well. Uh, so that is kind of year one with uh, a, a new tree. And sometimes I leave that guard on there through year two. Up north even more so because uh, your, you know, your tree makes it through and then the fall comes and you think it's fine and then spring comes and it's dead. Well, what happens is when the food gets very lean, that's when the rabbits will come out and eat at that inner bark, or it's called cambium on a tree. And uh, they'll just they'll lay waste to those young trees because it's, it's a food source at a time when they're starving, basically. So those are a couple ideas that I have. Um, the other one is if you told me the supplier, I'd tell you whether I know them to be a good supplier, a poor supplier, or I know nothing of them. Since you didn't, I, I can't speculate on that. But it's always possible that you got trees from a supplier that's not a good supplier. And uh, I'm not sure. Then the other thing is, what did you plant? If you planted a variety of apatal that's extremely cold-hardy and designed for northern climates, and you're in South Florida... That could be enough. So I'm, I'm just spitball here on a question like this. I know I tell you to get to the point, make your question specific, but you gotta, you gotta give me some details. The other is your soil type. If you're sitting in sandy soil where the water drains away and there's very little nutrient balance there, and the trees in that young growth stage after some shock of being, you know, bare rooted and sent out didn't get enough nutrient uptake, you got another problem. So I would focus on was there trunk damage to the tree? Was the soil in, uh, in good, you know, good status? Was the tree well irrigated? And if all of those are the case, uh, all of those check out, and everything was good there, uh, and you had proper uh, trees for your climate, so you weren't you know, growing an extreme northern variety in an extreme southern area or vice versa, if they check out, then you've got to go back on your supplier. You've got to say, hey, look, I bought these trees from you, and uh, they didn't grow and I want to know what the deal is. And you also want to probably check out, put the name of the supplier in, followed by the word review on Google, and see if they have a good or a poor reputation. Uh, comments, is, you know, poor quality, high quality, add words like that, and do some tracking down on the supplier. If everybody else that buys from them says, hey, I get great product from them and it grows, it's probably something with your environment. If you hear 20 or 30 people clamoring in different places online, I bought from supplier X and my trees were stakes that didn't grow, probably got a supplier issue. That's something you may want to do in advance of ordering next time. Best I can do with the information that you provided me, but 
This is one of the reasons I'm not the biggest fan of growing bare-rooted trees unless I have to. Uh, I prefer to buy a tree that's that's uh, kind of in that spring mode already with some leaves growing on it and all if I can. The problem with that is some of the varieties that I, I want to grow, I can't get that way. The only way to get them is to order them through the mail, and most mail-order businesses, for obvious reasons, ship trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, bare-rooted. Because if you put, a, you know, let's say a five-foot tree in bare rooting, you could put that into a, you know, like a, basically like a box they would ship a, a Christmas tree in. It's very light and shipping is very affordable. If I want to ship it in a pot of dirt or a burlap sack full of dirt, I add weight. I add concerns about which way the product is orientated so the box has to be shipped vertically and things like that. So that's why they tend to ship bare rooted. It comes with additional challenges uh, but for some varieties, you'll have to do it. Big thing, check the reputation of the supplier you're buying from before you order in a variety of gardening forums and things like that. And the best way to do that is start on Google, name of the supplier, and then put in words like great results, poor results, things like that. I'll give you a little Google trick today. If you were buying from supplier XYZ, and those were two words, right? So it was, you know, I want to put a name out there because I'll slander somebody that's a good company. Put quotation mark, supplier space XYZ, close quotation marks, and you'll only find results with an exact match of those two words. Then put a space and put in good or great or terrible or horrible or scam or whatever other word you're looking for. But right before that second word, put in a plus sign in that word. Then you'll only find information that has an exact match of the supplier's name and that exact word match as well. That's called Boolean uh, search techniques, and it's a great way to find a lot of things. So there's your little tech tip in the middle of a gardening tip from the Survival Podcast today. Now, here's one that uh, I mentioned last week, and I said I would probably still do it on the feedback show today because I think people need to hear it, and I talked about it to one particular degree um, last week, in one particular isolation point last week. And now I'm going to talk about it in a more general sense. This comes from Julie. Julie says, you seem to be very efficient about using your time and technology. I seem to be wasting a lot of time surfing, prep, and politics, and wondered if you had some type of method to be more effective and less wasteful about the amount of time spent on the web. I want to spend my time in the real world stuff, but seem to be wasting time always looking for more solutions. Thanks. Julie, you're not alone, and this is true in so many places. Um, I used to counsel a lot of people that were starting up businesses, and because of my web background, I would talk to a lot of people who were building a web-based business and often doing it as a second thing. So they had a job, they worked, you know, 8 to 5 or 7 to 4 or whatever, and they'd come home and have dinner, and they'd get on a computer and they'd get to quote-unquote work, and they would work their ass off for hours and hours being away from their family sacrifice because they knew one day they were going to get that big website going, and then they would make money and be able to quit their jobs and come home home and, and, and honestly do the type of thing that I'm doing here. But I, I think that people have a misconception of that, but leave the misconception out because this isn't how to run a business. But what would happen is that they would be spending all this time online researching how to get more traffic and going into forums about SEO and Google and things like that and reading inspirational stories about people that did it. And I think the same phenomenon comes over into the prepping industry where instead, and I think that the forum, I mean, I'm glad we have a forum. I think it's great. I think people are learning tremendous things by it. But it's easy to get into that forum and spend four or five hours there. 
it's easy to, to, to start reading articles on places like Lou Rockwell or if you're a little bit out there on Alex Jones's prison planet and uh, all these other places and, and to go through all this information. And trust me, I'm grateful to every one of you that, that's like my little mini research assistant out there that keeps sending me the stuff. Thank you so much. I can never, there's so much information coming in, I could never use it all. If I hire somebody ever as an assistant, one of the first things I'm going to have them doing is screening that stuff so that I make sure I get to the best stuff. Uh, and get the facts on it as quickly as possible. So all of these things in of themselves are good, but if they monopolize your time to the point of inactivity, they're terrible. They cause what I consider to be irreparable damage on some levels to what you're getting done and to your preparedness as a whole. And here's what I mean. I've talked about this term before. You're on a sliding scale right now. You're on a sliding scale with many facets of your life. With your weight and your health, you're on a sliding scale. You're either getting a little bit healthier and a little bit fitter every day or a little bit less healthy and a little bit less fit every day. With If you're in a business, your business is getting a little stronger and a little bit more energized and a little bit more profitable every day or it's getting a little bit less profitable. When people say their business is stagnated, I'm like, no, it's in decline. There's no such thing as a stagnated business. It's either growing or declining. No business stays put. And no part of your life stays put. It always moves. So if you're spending all your time on the computer reading about solutions and very little time actually acting on solutions, then what happens is nothing actually changes. You might feel really good about it, but no good comes from it. I'll say that again. You might feel really good about it, but no good comes from it. And here's the real problem. When a disaster hits your life, whether it's a personal disaster in losing a job, or it's a regional disaster and there's riots in your neighborhood, or it's a great big disaster and the electrical grid is down throughout the United States, you're actually going to freak out more than most of the sheeple. And the reason you're going to do that is because you're so informed about what you could have done, you're going to be filled with regret. And you're so informed about the consequences of, in, in, of not being prepared uh, that you're going to be more panic-stricken about how bad things can really get. Sometimes being ignorant is blissful, and for the sheeple sometimes that's true because the disaster looks huge, but it turns out to be a non-event like the swine flu. A lot of preppers, when the swine flu came out, and we were being told it was the end of life as we know it and all, had a real bad uh, feeling in their stomach, and they started to think, man, I should have done more while I can, now it's really here. Now, fortunately, we, we kind of isolated the fact that it wasn't really going to be a big deal really, really fast, and the people that make their living on catastrophe manufactured a new catastrophe. They're trying to kill us with the vaccine, right? So that went on for a while, and we haven't seen anybody dying of this vaccine. That said, I never got the vaccine because I thought it was rust into production. And uh, generally don't get a flu vaccine anyway. So unless I believe that the, the, the danger of the flu, is great for me, is greater than the danger of the vaccine, I don't get the vaccine. I do a risk assessment there. But you, you get what I'm saying. People were freaked out especially the first couple of days before we knew what was really going on. And the preppers that were like lukewarm preppers were the most freaked out because they knew everything that could happen, and they knew all the time and resources they had squandered up till then. So I guess I'm being long on this answer a little bit, but it's because those are the things that will motivate you to take action. So the number one way to get out of research mode into action mode is to understand the consequences of inaction and let that be a motivating force for you. The other thing I'll tell you is, you know, if you have an iPod and you want to just blend your time of prepping and being informed with activities, 
Stop listening to shows like mine and, and anything else that you're listening to on your computer. Download them, put the earphones in, and get your ass to work, and listen while you're working, and that's how I maximize my time. Think about how I launched this show all the way up until uh, January 1st of this year. Most of my shows were done in my car. Uh, for those of you that are new to the show, you may not be aware of this. By older shows, you'll hear all this tire noise, noise and road noise and occasionally a horn or a siren. That's because I drove 50 miles every day to work. I put on a headset, I turned on a recorder, and I did this show on a 50-mile commute, weaving in and out of traffic, going from doing one mile an hour in gridlock to 70 miles an hour in between places where the traffic freed up. And I did that every day. That's a using... One function for two functions. So driving also became the recording of the show. So when I want to listen to, like I listen to the SS Homestead podcast by Johnny Max and the Queen. Uh, I listen to Lou Rockwell's podcast when he has one. I even occasionally listen to Alex Jones. Generally not sitting behind a computer, though. Uh, I have a headset in, and I'm out in my garden doing something, or I'm out building something, or I'm cutting the grass. It doesn't matter, but I'm doing something on my property, or I'm working on a project, uh, or I'll be you know, sitting at my dining room table using it as a workstation, doing some gunsmithing work on one of my guns, or building a grow light, or building a, uh, a, a small camp stove, or doing some modifications to my RV. I take action while I'm assimilating information. Now, will you assimilate the information as well as if you just sat there and listened? No, you probably won't. But you know what? You're probably not going to assimilate all the information in a show uh, or an audio program anyway. That's the beauty of the Internet. You can listen to it two or three times to assimilate the information that's really important to you. And when, when you're doing something, but you hear something that really catches your ear, back up a few seconds stop, listen to that segment, and then go back to work. That's another one. The next thing I'm going to tell you is probably the most important part of this, and it'll solve the majority of the problems you would have in the first place, and that is schedule your time. Uh, I did this with business people again. I, I always go back to what I know and what I know has worked. I had high-powered business people that I would, well, I would counsel and mentor that would say, one of my big problems is I'm not taking care of my wife and my children. I'm not living up to my responsibilities as a husband and father. And I'd say schedule the time. And a lot of them would feel weird about that. And especially if they, and if they told their wives, I'd like, never tell your wife this. This is what you're doing. Because she'll never understand it. She'll take it the wrong way. And they'd say, well, I shouldn't have to schedule time to spend with my son and my wife. I should just want to. And I'm like, dude, that's your wife talking. All right? Here's what I want to point out to you. Who's your biggest client? And they'd give me a name. And I'd say, okay, or your biggest customer, whatever. Do you spend time regularly addressing situations for them, calling them up, out of, it seems to them out of the blue, just to check and make sure everything's all right, to send them an email, things like that. Do you do that? And they'd say yes. And I'd say, do you schedule that time? And they'd say yes. And I'd say, why do you schedule that time? And they'd say, because it's important to me. So I'd say, your client is important enough to schedule time for, but your family isn't. And it turns that paradigm around. And there's a lot of women out there that are listening to me right now getting really mad. I'm sorry, women. I'm sorry. And, and, and especially women that have never had that kind of a high-level position uh, where they've had to schedule time for relationship building. Right? Salespeople will understand this. Uh, High-end marketing people will understand this. It had to do a lot of like trade show planning and all. If a relationship is important, you schedule time. And once it's locked into that schedule, it happens. So if your problem is that you're not spending enough time with your wife 
or you're not spending enough time with your kids, create time blocks where both you and they are available. They don't even need to know that it's being religiously scheduled. But lock those times in. And if it's 4.30 on Friday, I leave the office a half hour early. I go over and pick up Jimmy, and we go out and play, you know, I don't care what, for an hour. We go to the rifle range for an hour, or we go play basketball for an hour. And at 6 o'clock, I get home, I take a shower, and that's date night. And I damn well take my wife out every Friday night at 6 o'clock and send the kids off to do something else. And we schedule some alone time. You do it. Well, that's what you do with your prepping. Allocate a few hours or a few days or whatever it is a month. Allocate time to spend on action. Schedule the action time and the activity. And when that time comes, just like when it's 8 o'clock and you have to be at work at 8 o'clock and you're there, and the first thing you do is log in, check your email, and respond to your initial emails, and that's scheduled time, so you do it. That's what happens with your prepping. And I think that's so important, folks that we start scheduling time to do these things. Schedule time to work on your garden. Schedule time to work on your skills. Schedule time for building things. You know, here's the thing. People start a project. Like, let's say I'm going to build an outbuilding, a shed. And they just say, basically, whenever I have free time, I'll go work on that shed. And that project takes three or four months. And it usually gets done in, like, five or six spurts. And it really doesn't take three or four months. It takes three or four days of actual work time. But that work gets all done in these big spurts. But if you said, until this thing is done, uh, I'm going to go out there and work on it on Mondays, Wednesdays from when I get home at 5.30 to 7.30 because it's summertime and it's light out. So I'm going to do those four hours a week after work, leaving other time for other things and and dinner and things like that. And on Saturdays, I'm going to work every Saturday on this thing from, let's say, 8 in the morning till noon until it's done. And that's going to be a schedule, and that schedule is going to be met, and I'm going to schedule the other things around it. You know, that shed wouldn't take three months to build. It would take less than a month, which would bring you to your next project. And then here's the other one. Don't have five projects going at one time. Pick one and run it to fruition. Now, sometimes a project has to be done in phases. So pick one or two to run concurrently with it, but minimize the total number of things that actually require your time and effort. The next one is begin to integrate some of the things I've been talking about since the beginning. Storing food doesn't take any extra time and very little extra money. Go out, next time you go to the grocery store and have something storable, buy two of it instead of one. And only do that with things that you're buying anyway. Find a little bit of space and stick it in there. It will be very easy for you to get to about a month of sustainability that way. It doesn't require extra time. It doesn't require extra effort. It doesn't require extra planning. Now, if you plan it, manage it, add up your caloric intake, really do some rationing and some planning and things like that, will you get a better result? Sure. But get out of the starting blocks. You know, a lot of folks are out there, and you're like the guy that's sitting in the dugout wanting to know when he's going to get a chance to hit a home run. Well, the first time you hit the ball, you may ground out to first, or you may get a single, or you may not get a home run. But you're not going to get anything until you get out from behind the dugout, stand in front of the pitcher, and take the pitch. And then when the pitch comes, swing the hell out the damn thing. And you'll never do that in a forum. A forum is so you can build relationships, gain confidence, and get information. But you should be applying information in action on a daily basis all the time. You will screw things up. Please do it now. 
Okay? That's the other thing. Well, what if I mess something up? I heard that from so many business people. Great. Right now, you don't have a, you don't have a customer base. Right now, you don't have a brand. This is a perfect time to screw things up. Screw up everything you can in the next three months. So that by the time you get some traction and your mistakes are actually going to cost you something, you'll have made them and learned from them. I feel the same way about being a prepper. Make your mistakes now. Make your mistakes today. When if you grow a pepper and it dies, it doesn't matter because you can buy one until later. Make your mistakes now. Go out there and build the, the shed. Screw up the wall. Have to go out there and buy an extra sheet of uh, siding because you've messed it up. No big deal. If you wait until you absolutely need that shed, then you'll be panicked and you won't, you know, you, it, when you have to build something quickly, you won't be able to because you won't have made the mistakes in the past and gained the experience. You know, go out there and buy a bicycle and fix it up and, and turn it into an electric bike as an alternative means of transportation. Go out there and build that solar system right now. Spend a little bit more money than you should have because you've done something wrong. Burn out some wiring as long as you don't kill yourself, right? You know, if you, if you melt a little insulation off a wire because you put the wrong lead down, hopefully you've uh, you got a, you got a, something in there to break the circuit or you recognize it quickly and you're using safety, safety, but at least you can go get another part. Go out there and make your mistakes today. I guess that's my biggest advice. The biggest reason people hold back on activity with this stuff, if they're generally, if they're genuinely interested in doing it, let's face it, there's some people in the ranks of the prepper movement online that are all about the talk and it's cool and it's an affinity, but most of them are not that. They're that plus I really want to get something done. The people that really want to get something done generally feel overwhelmed and don't know where to start, so pick something and do it. Okay, it will, it, it, doing something will always be better than doing nothing. All right. The next one is fear that you'll mess it up, and I'm telling you right now, there's no fear in messing anything up. Anything you do can be fixed. That's why we have erasers on pencils, and that's why when we started with with typewriters before we had computers, they came out with whiteout because mistakes are made and need to be corrected. So go make your mistakes today, but don't let inaction rob you of your birthright as a human. And your birthright as a human is to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, like it says uh, in our in our Constitution, right? And that is, or the Declaration, that is your birthright. And not as an American, as a human. So if you're listening to me in England or Czechoslovakia, I don't think there is a Czechoslovakia anymore. If you're, I don't care where you are. I just got an email from somebody in Croatia. Uh, if you're listening to me anywhere in the world, there is that same right for you. And you claim it through your action. Not through your thoughts, and not through your words, but through your deeds. We have so many people that are politically active. But I'm asking, how active are you physically? What are you actually doing? You can run around with a sign protesting Obamacare all you want. Guess what? They've passed it, just like I told you they would. But it's up to you how much you're going to have to be part of that system. Part of it's by taking care of yourself. Part of it's by putting systems of redundancy in. Part of it's through educating yourself. But all of these things require action. So get off your butt. I hope that's the answer you were looking for, because it's the answer you got. And I figured a lot of people could learn from that answer as well, which is why I decided to wrap up today's show with it. Folks, I hope this was a good show for you. I think I'm adjusting to this new mic, and it threw my timing off a little bit. I have to stay in front of it to get the good quality that it provides. I think I'll adapt to that rather quickly, but I'm used to having this headset on where I can stand up and move around the room and things like that. Now I'm kind of 
back, like just back in the car, you know, I'm stuck in the chair uh, to be in front of the mic. So uh, I'm going to work on getting better with the timings, uh, but I think it's going to be worth it to be better with the audio quality. Uh, my last thought for you today, though, is I know I say this a lot, but I want you to understand that the things that we talk about are really important to your life, and they're important to your life even if nothing goes wrong. Um, I had an exchange with a guy over the weekend who is one of these people that's got basically a nuclear bomb shelter in the middle of the wilderness that you wouldn't know that was there if you looked at it. It's got trees growing over top of it or whatever. There's no signs of life. They've got years and years worth of food in there. They've got a group together, and if they ever have to go there, they'll have to hike in the last, you know, whatever many miles it is, and they don't expect to see anybody, and they're going to hide away uh, when, the, uh, when the nuclear bombs drop or the New World Order comes or whatever. And I'm not going to put that down. If that's the level of preparedness that you want to go to and you have the resources for it, more power to you. And I'll tell you what, you'll be safe in just about anything that goes wrong other than maybe some things that actually end all life on the planet. Uh, and you might even survive for a little while after an event like that, like a, a comet or something like that. But there is a point at which we lose. And there is a finite level of the earth. And there's a finite level of all life. But that's why I don't go into let's go hide in the wilderness. Right, as far away from all existing life as we can and try to have a retreat with no signs of life on it whatsoever, which is what this guy was advocating. And again, I'm not putting him down. It's just that's his view. My view is differently. My view is that we have only so many years to spend on this planet. And my survival is important to me, but my survival in a way that actually brings happiness and joy to my life and to the lives of others around them is important as well. And if I have to live in a hole in the ground like a mole for a month, but I can have some hope of rebuilding that happiness in my life, fine. If I have to live like a mole in a hole in the ground for the rest of my life, it's not really worth living to me. So I, te I tend to put my focus on the things that will mitigate the disasters that we're actually likely to have to deal with in the near future. And those are going to be things like food shortages, water shortages, and energy shortages. On the natural disaster front, there are going to be storms, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be volcanic eruptions. We actually do have a threat of extraterrestrial activity. And I don't mean ET uh, or, you know, the close encounters of the third kind type. I'm talking about rocks, giant rocks, comets, icebergs in outer space that could smash into our planet. And I'm talking about things like solar flare activity and solar radiation and solar storms. So there's all types of things that actually threaten our survival and our existence. No matter what your eventual plan is, even if you want that bunker out in the middle of nowhere, it makes sense to start your survival planning with basic common sense things that start at the home level that help prepare you for things like either your house burning down or, God forbid, a spouse or a child or somebody else that's very important to the family dying or losing a job. Those are the things that are most likely to happen. Those things happen to somebody every single day. They happen to multiple people in multiple places every single day. So start there and build out. And if you're not prepared for that, but you're prepared for the end of the world as we know it, you've got your priorities out of whack. Stick to priorities that will actually make your life better. When people ask me, how do I get a spouse on board? How do I get a friend on board? Show them how survival planning will make their lives better right now, today. Because people do things that they see immediate benefits from. The fact is, if we do that, we'll create long-term benefits as well. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life from time to time, or even if they don't.
can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent 